Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In, in, in any field, in, in business, you know, in, uh, in any kind of entertainment, in, in general conversation, humor is a terrifically good tool for solving all sorts of problems. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, and entertainment, who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humour with you. Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is the multi-award winning producer behind such humorous hits as Blackadder, QI, Spitting Image and Not the Nine O'Clock News. When he's not acting as the creative force behind high-quality comedy-packed programmes, you can hear him as the presenter of BBC Radio 4's The Museum of Curiosity. Throughout his career, he has earned a plethora of BAFTAs for comedy and advertising, plus a Grammy and an Emmy. In 2011, he was appointed Commander of the British Empire for his legendary work producing television and radio, he politely professes to be the professor of ignorance, but he sure knows plenty about producing a punchline and creating comedy gold. John Lloyd, welcome to the Humorology podcast. <laughs> Hello, Paul. <laughs> Lovely to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I want to start at the beginning, really. The, the Jesuits say, give me a child of seven and I will give you the man. What's the seven-year-old John Lloyd humorous? Well, I do remember my early childhood being extremely funny. Uh, I remember the whole family would be in hysterics quite often. Um, my dad was Anglo-Irish, and we used to every year go to uh, County Wexford and County Waterford and Tipperary and visit all the, the, the mad rallies. And... Um, <laughs> We would go to church, Church of Ireland, we're prods, um, in my cousin and my godmother's pony and trap. And the horse would always fart as we were sitting there in our little Sunday best and the horse would fart. So we were laughing when we went to the church. And the vicar was incredibly short-sighted and used to read the Bible like this, literally with his nose on the page. And we would just be hooting and, you know, gurgling all the way through. So I, I remember that my dad was funny. 
um and i was good at um i was always been good at voices you know so i was one of those kids who would you know get laughs by impersonating teachers and all that kind of thing so yeah i think it starts it starts young it's a bit like a curiosity you know that i've always been very curious because because my dad was in the navy we we're often on troop ships and on long long car journeys in what they used to call a station wagon and so I was often not at school, I didn't really go to school properly until I was nine and a half. We were always, you know, being pulled out of a school and then traveling for a while and finding another one. And my mum used to teach us in the car on board these troop ships by giving us quizzes. Okay, so kids, you know, learn, give us three trees beginning with E, you know. And so I think I'm hardwired for that. And actually it was a bit of a shock, you know, going to school, having to sit down and shut up and sit in rows and do what you're told. Um, so I've always had a kind of anti-authoritarian kind of streak, really. I don't like to be told. I like to be, you know, you know, told to get on with it, really, which is the way I was, you know, trained at the BBC. A guy came into the writer's room and said, you, would you like to be a producer? And I said, not really, sir. Well, they all seem very old to me and tweedy. What do they do? And he said, well, it, it's quite easy, really. You just make stuff you like. Well, that I like? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's the idea. Because if you don't like it, how, do, how can you guarantee anyone else will? So that's the way I was trained. And uh, I did... I made a hundred radio programs in my first year. I really, I got completely, I was a very lazy school child and very slack student. And I found my vocation at 22 and just lived by this thing. I just make stuff that I like. And, and that's, a, that's what I've always done. So it's gut instinct a lot of the time, but humor is at the core of that. Uh, you, you kind of uh, passed over and went from school straight into work but but I'm interested because you were sent away to public school and you talk about a period of that being like a prison sentence was humor important to the survival mechanism whilst you were there uh, yeah I think so I mean prep school was was very tough but you know 10 year old boys are pretty tough in my you know a lot of rugby a lot of being you know freezing cold not much food lots of fighting, you know, uh, and, and all that, but actually it was great. You know, little boys don't mind a scrap, you know, you have a punch up with your best friend and then you're friends again. And, you know, adventures in the woods and collecting fur cones and iron bars and, you know, playing war games and, and all that, that was, that was great. Actually, it was really, I remember it's being really good fun. Public school was difficult because it was the middle of the 60s and at King's Canterbury, we were all dressed like little Neville Chamberlains, you know, in <laughs> wing collars and boaters. And all we wanted to do was go and listen to rock music and the sort of, you know, the calves and all that. And that wasn't allowed. And then you got jeered at by the sort of townies and all that kind of stuff. And it was, it's kind of ridiculous when you're 15 being told to change into your pajamas and being given six by your housemaster for something that you hadn't actually even done. You know, it's, I found that very difficult that, that you weren't treated, you were treated like a, um, an object really. My wife said, you should tell Paul the uh, story of when you did, I've never seen Star Wars. Did you ever hear that program? Yes, I remember it was. It's really good fun. You undertake to do five things you've never done before. Marcus Brigstock is the. He's brilliant, Marcus. He's a lovely man, isn't he? And 
Anyway, you undertake to do five things you've never done. And I agreed to uh, watch uh, The Wire, which I'd never seen, read uh, The Curious Incident of a Dog in the Nighttime, which I'd never read, uh, Milk a Goat, which obviously I'd never done, do five minutes of stand-up, which I'd never done either. They were astonished to think that I'd never actually technically done stand-up, most terrifying experience of my entire life. And the last thing was go back to school, which I had built up this idea that I would hate, I hated school and 40 years, it was 40 years to the year that I went back to the school. And I suddenly realized I didn't hate it at all. I hated some of it, but a lot of it was great and really entertaining and fun. I had great friends and put on plays and all that. And I, that's a funny thing in life, you know, that you get lifted this weight of what you see as a, your formative years being awful was not true. And it really, let lightness into my heart you know after 40 years of being resentful about it it's extraordinary the stories we tell ourselves about who we are that aren't actually true well that's right psychologically we we, we reinvent our past don't we in our heads i i'm interested when you talk about um that you suddenly learned that 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 teaching could be another thing because both on qi and uh the museum of curiosity this like an inherent feeling that you're with the best teacher you ever had because you make everything fascinating and I think that's by using enthusiasm and humor to bring it to life uh, do you think humor helps people retain knowledge and that's the way things should be taught who doesn't like the teacher who was funny you know I mean it's the humor is one of the great weapons in life I mean I would say the other one is interestingness I mean I I passionately believe that you know qi isn't just a silly panel game and and its sister program museum of curiosity but they that interestingness is a, a panacea it's the solution to everything um, because if you're interested in someone you can't murder them you know it's the way that the really bad things wars and you know genocide those kind of things happen because the other side, the victims are demonized and treated as less than human. The minute you're interested in someone, suddenly you find a bond. And it's said to be the case that if somebody ever tries to mug you, the first thing to do is I not run away or stand up to him, just say, how's your mum? And it completely destabilizes the guy. And he goes, uh, well, she's fine. And, and then suddenly you're, you're two human beings again. But aside from interestingness, I mean, definitely humor is in, in, in any field, in, in business, in, you know, in, uh, in any kind of entertainment, in, in general conversation, humor is a terrifically good tool for solving all sorts of problems. I was just thinking this morning that there's a, 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 an ethnic group called the Mbuti in the Congo, or the Bambuti, and they used to be called the Pygmies. We don't call them that now, but they're very short. Uh, ethnically and they don't have any hierarchies at all they have no kings and presidents and rulers and all disputes are solved by humor they all sit down and you know supposing there's a an argument about you know who's got the banana or whatever it is or you know where where's the goat um i don't know how they how they live but if there's some sort of dispute they sit on the ground and they solve it by humor they get people to laugh and everything is better again and similarly, you know, I do occasionally do public speaking and there is nothing like 
you know, jokes in, in any context, you know, in a, a, a conference or a, any sort of a business proposition. And I was a commercials director for about 12 years in the days when British comedy advertising was the best in the world in the late 80s and early 90s. There were not many of us. But the, the traction that we used to get, the, because, you know, if you can put a proposition with humour, it goes in deep and people remember it, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very effective, effective thing. I mean, that's not why I do it. I mean, I do it because I love to laugh and it's great fun. And I love the fact that it cheers people up principally. That's what I've got it down to is that, that that's a good thing to do. I was kind of ashamed when I left Cambridge and uh, my friends all went off to become bankers and doctors and, you know, serious things. And I was larking around making silly jokes on the radio. <laughs> and, uh, and I sort of, this is a slightly embarrassing. It's just a kind of hobby that I'm paid to do. But over the years, I've thought short of being a doctor or some kind of healer or carer, there's not really a better way of, uh, spending your life than making people more cheerful than they were before they listened to or watched the program. It's great. It's a harmless thing. And, you know, I, I was supposed to be a lawyer. That's what I read at Cambridge. But I was very quickly aware I was going to be a lousy lawyer. Apart from anything else, I couldn't bear the idea of what if I lost a case I should have won? What if I won a case that I should have lost? I would have possibly ruined somebody's life. Whereas if a joke doesn't land, well, you know, it's not the end of the world, you know? It's slightly embarrassing, but it's not worse than that. Well, I, I, I'm really interested you talked about bonding, and I, I think that's the, uh, the quickest way that people bond, is, is when, when you laugh together. It, it's an, uh, the ultimate bond. And I think that, I mean, the whole Humorology project is predicated around uh, the fact of that it's not just about laughing, it's about good humour, it's bringing, bringing niceness, kindness back into the world. Um, so true. And, well, well yeah. yeah, you talk a lot about uh, that you learnt that it was more important to be kind than important. Can you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, well... You know, I had a I had a kind of ridiculous first 15 years of my working life when I, you know, I, I was lucky enough to work with some extraordinarily talented people. And I worked very, very hard. I missed everybody's weddings and, you know, worked all the weekends and did five different jobs at once. And and then I ran out of road when I was 42, ironically, and I woke up one morning. I couldn't see the point of anything. And so I had to reset all the, the dials. It was very difficult. The first three years particularly were pretty miserable. And I couldn't understand what had happened because it was ridiculous because I had everything. You know, I had kids. I had a, you know, lovely flat and, and a car and, and uh, uh, you know, just the, what my room in those days had awards everywhere. Just, I, you know, I won a lot of awards in advertising and in television and uh, um, and that's how I defined myself of things. I achieved these things. And I just thought, is this all I am? hundred pieces of cardboard in glass frames, you know, is that me? And I remember during that crisis, suddenly thinking cheerfulness, that's a thing. 
that would be a good thing to be rather than what I used to value as intelligence. You know, I like to win arguments or do well at quizzes or, you know, determination and um, that kind of stuff. No, no, just being cheerful. That's a great thing to do. And then off that comes kindness, you know, and, and gentleness, that kind of thing rather. And these were revelations to me. It had never occurred to me that cheerfulness was an actively good thing to do because I, was, I used to be known as Mr. Grumpy, you know, or Terry Tension, I was sometimes known as, because I was always like focused on, we've got to get this right. We've got to get the job done. And now I think, no, it's much more important to be cheerful and kind. That's what, uh, that's what makes the world tick along nicely. Well, I think that's really interesting. And from a psychological standpoint, I think that's a, there's a, a saying in psychology, which is that if you want anybody to go into any state, you have to go into that state first. So actually, you can change other people's lives by being cheerful and kind, because that's what they'll do. And you talked about, you know, being Mr. Grumpy and everything. Well, guess what? Actually, then you're leading other people in into that way. And so I think yeah. it's very important for leaders to understand something that you came to, that actually, if you're going to lead and you want an organization to really flourish, kindness and cheerfulness are probably paramount. And, uh, and respect. I think it was John Locke, the philosopher, who said um, he who would have his son respect him must have a great deal of respect for his son and we oh, were yeah. pretty lousy parents at the beginning because we were both very my wife was a very successful publisher and we thought you know the thing to do is tell people what to do and 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 they do it you know the children don't think like that i i don't want to i want to bounce on the bed no no you you're not allowed to well i'm going to well no you so and now that we've we run uh, quite interesting limited the our company which makes qi and everything together and i often say i wish that i had learned how to run a company properly before i was a parent because the way the company is run is when they when the people arrive they're told you know first of all they're all very keen to do the job because they've seen the program it's been their dream to be a qi elf as we say and I give them a little hours induction talk where I say, you know, the first thing is we want to know what you think, you know, like when I was told as a radio producer, this, you know, don't try and guess what I find interesting. Do what you find interesting. We're interested in you. You never always feel you can speak out about anything. We want to know what everybody thinks. And it's sometimes quite difficult to get people to be brave, to stand up to the boss, you know, but that's the way we work. And, you know, the office is like a really cozy, it's a bit like this room here. It's got, you know, nice rugs and sofas and people encourage, they can lie on the sofa and read if that's how they want to do their research. That's so, so it's like being at home really. And it's very, there is no hierarchy. It's a very flat hierarchy. Everybody is respected. You're told you're here because we think you're brilliant and we like you, you know, so just, you know, just be yourself. And it is quite extraordinary how with that, I, I would call it love and encouragement, how people blossom. They become the people that we could all become, which, you know, they're easy in their skin. They are modest. They're hardworking. They're very engaged what they do. It's really miraculous, you know, whereas 
as a parent, it's all, all of, you think it's all about control and it's not. Everything about parenting is, is a business of getting out of the way. The children are fine. Make sure they've got enough food and they don't hurt themselves. And otherwise, just encourage them. That's all, all you have to do. Instead of getting angry and, you know, and frightened and, you know, resentful and all the things people do and telling them what to do. Children learn by example. That's the only way they ever learn. And so the interesting thing about parenting, it is the parents who need to grow up. And that if you're any good at it, you know, we're a pretty happy family these days. And it's all about the because the parents have finally tried to be grown up and treat children. You know, I often say children are not stupid than you, stupid than you. They know less things and they're shorter, but otherwise they're in many ways brighter. You know, children ask all the right questions. You know, they and we we beat that out of them at school, you know, because questioning, you know, what's what is true is is not generally encouraged in schools and you know people who do well in life often don't do very well at school because they say well why why that's a silly way of doing it i'd rather do this no no you're not allowed to do that the great philosophy ideas are incredibly simple but they're often counterintuitive like that idea is in a family with children the children are fine the parents need to behave like adults finally and you know, it's like everybody shouts at their children or most people that I've ever met at some point. And the thing is, if you shout at your children, they will not get good at what you're shouting at them about. They will only become skilled at shouting. Yes. And that's what happens. So you get caught in this sort of hamster wheel of all the things and you catch yourself as a parent speaking like your dad. You know, don't how dare you speak to me like that. Go to your room. What, I, what did I say that? I even had my father's voice for a moment, you know. People sometimes say to me when I'm uh, lecturing at conferences, and I'm sure you've had this as well, isn't a lot of what you're saying common sense? And I always say, no, it's uncommon sense. Yes. People only know it when you point it out to them. And I think what you're saying, I know you're uh, fond of what Plato said, that early education should be a, what is it, a form of form play. Form of play. Uh, because that you way discover... you will be you will be better able to discover the child's natural bent and if there was a qi school which is has always been the dream within the company to start a school is that's what you would do the first two years um you would just watch everybody and you'd think okay she's a mathematician no doubt about that I and mean, he's a he's going to be a drummer and uh, you know she's she's very good at organizing things she's probably going to be some sort of manager or producer and and then what you would do is you would only examine the children on the subjects that they were passionate about. So you would decide I'm a mathematician uh, and that's what I do. Uh, and they, you would fast track them. They'd still have to go to history and geography and English, but that wouldn't be tested. It would just be fun. And what I think would happen is that because the mathematicians aren't interested in history, they're interested in numbers, but you, you, you skew the history to, you know, people in history or mathematicians you tell them stories and after a while the historians start thinking that maths thing i think i'd like to have a go at that and you know rather than telling everybody everybody must do 10 gcses and everybody's yeah. supposed to get an a in all of them and that's not the way life works we're all 
we all have preferences, you know, we're better at some things than others. And why should people have to do subjects? I was terrible at maths, but I only got interested in maths in my 40s when, because of this midlife crisis, I thought, okay, there's something wrong here, something badly wrong. I've got everything and I'm not happy and I don't know why. So I started reading philosophy for the first time and physics and I trying to want to work how the world actually physically works and what's the best way of navigating it. You know, how, how do you live an optimal life? I'm very interested because you were talking about, uh, you know, children and how they learn best and everything. And I wonder if this can be crossed over into a company culture and creativity, because I think one of the biggest problems in, 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 cult in cultures in big companies is they lose that ability to be creative. And I'm, I'm wondering if you think that attitude and humor has an impact on allowing people to uh, fulfill their creative potential, I suppose. Well, of course, because we are a company that essentially does comic things, you know, podcasting, theater, television, radio, books, you know, our job is to make people laugh as well as make, make them interested so it's not surprising that in, you know, there's a company Zoom going on today and people will be laughing a lot, you know, because they'll be talking about interesting, funny things and so forth. So that's that's a good base. Perhaps more difficult if you're making electrical fitments or um, more difficult. But, you know, here's the thing, Paul, you know, because I mentioned my dad was in the Navy. So we traveled all my childhood. And the last thing I wanted to do with my gap year was go traveling. I wanted to earn some money. So I got a job as a tea boy for a local Essex builder called Mac. And that's what I did for a year. And, you know, eventually uh, I, they used to uh, let me drive the minivan and pick up the cement. And then you taught me how to do plastering and tiling and all that rub down doors. And it was the best job, honestly, I've ever had. It's very satisfying, that sort of craft work, because you look back at the end of the day at the roof you've just built or the wall you've painted and you think we did that and then you go to the pub and the guys they were all much older than me obviously I was only 18 or something and they were so funny these guys they were a, very good at their jobs they were sort of I guess you call them working class Tories probably but they're all very good people they were all uh, nearly all of them are volunteer firemen in their spare time they're all extremely bright and funny, we laughed all the time, you know, and of course they teased me rotten because I was a long haired lefty, but we all became very good friends. And uh, that's the, one of the things I think makes me a, a reasonably good producer is I like my audience. When I have to think those are the people, those working class people who didn't do well at school because they weren't taught properly, but the native intelligence, I, you know, as I often say is like, you watch an electrician and a plumber, you know, trying to rewire a house, the intelligence there, the, in, you know, the problem solving gift is extraordinary. And I lost every argument I had with these guys over lunch, you know, we'd argue about politics. And I lost all the time because they were very clever people. And that's the thing why I'm professor of ignorance is everybody's ignorant, but very few people are actually stupid, you know, unless you're brain damaged. It's, it's the ignorance that's the problem. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you uh, think that... that, that over time, and now we're getting into political realms. Um, my father, God rest his soul, used to say he was a Hungarian refugee. He used to say, and we used to talk about a lot, that we want to keep the public ignorant because it's easier to control an, an ignorant public. Do you think that's an, a, a basic problem uh, with society is that they don't want people to be educated um, because it's easier to control them. Well, I know I'm not going to name him, but a very senior figure in broadcasting is a friend of mine says that the, the education system is, is exactly that, because if people were properly educated, they'd be furious about the way the country is run. You know, it is, and we, why I'm so keen and passionate on education is that I think, I mean, you know, <laughs> I think some executives think that QI is like for professors, is that prof professors are the last people who like QI because they go, you know, it's not really the ninth century, very much more the eighth century. I think you'll find the Vikings really flourished. Um, and you said ninth century, and that's not right. You know, they, they will be fussy about it. The people who love QI are cab drivers, you know, and your brickies, you know, who, 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 struggled at school because nobody understood they thought in a different way to the standard way and they just soak up information i mean i love black cab drivers particularly because you know probably that they've uh, got a bit of their brain because the knowledge is so hard to do they've got a, a bigger i think it's the hypothalamus or something like that in the back of their brain that's bigger than other people's and they're very very bright guys um and very determined people it's a it's a a high calling and that's the th it's such a shame that we waste people's 
natural abilities, particularly because we're still teaching people as if we have an empire, you know, and you want to divide your cattle essentially into two kinds, the people who can process vast amounts of very dull information carefully and accurately to, so they can become imperial civil servants or bankers or corporate lawyers. Those are the people who get all the straight A's. And the other people who can mend things and, and you know, drive trucks and push wheelbarrows around and who are not required to think other than just do that. And it's kind of crazy. What we really need is more guitarists and more novelists and more creative people, more comedians, because that's one of the things that Britain is very good at. We are very, for, for reasons we don't really understand, a very creative company. After finance, our second biggest export is not tractors or, you know, manganese nodules. It is IP. You know, it's movies, it's actors, it's uh, books, it's uh, formats, music. You know, in Britain, Britain's got about 1% of the world's population, but we deliver something like 10% of the world's music. I mean, that is astonishing, isn't it? Oh, it is astonishing. And, and uh, talking of music, your, your son, Harry, um, has um, this act, it's band, uh, Waiting for Smith. Um, which is a uh, 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 fantastic music and really good thing. Can you tell me a little bit, Mel, because I know that you've you've taken over the role of manager as well. Yeah, that's right. I'm Brian Ego. Brian Ego's a name. Lovely boys, very talented. Did I mention the rider? The, it's the M&Ms. No green ones. All right, because if you put green ones in, they'll, they'll walk off. So I kind of take that persona and quite carry it off at festivals sometimes just for fun. Uh, Brian Lee goes and I'm lovely. Um, yes, yeah, so Harry uh, is, well, it all fits together. So Harry's a classic uh, thing of what I'm talking about. I have two daughters who are, uh, all my kids are, are wonderful. My daughters are, you know, uh, neat and tidy and diligent. And they basically, they're happy to sit down and do the work properly and carefully. And they're very, very bright and all that. Both got very good degrees. And Harry's like me, he can't go to work if he doesn't believe in it. You know, I couldn't do maths and I just, just clocked off, you know. But if I'm committed to something, I give in 150% and Harry's the same. So when he discovered rugby, the first rugby match he was in, he scored five tries and was the man of the match. And nobody had spotted him before. And then he did that for ages. And then he discovered acting, you know. Again, all these things are not, you'd think, they're, they're extracurricular, aren't they? He, you know, he, those aren't things you have a career on. But of course you can be a, an international rugby player or a, a very successful actor and make a lot of money and give a lot of people pleasure. Why these things are considered not proper education is completely beyond me. So, for example, has um, he's extremely dyslexic, but he's very bright. And so it was he was nearly 17 before they sent him to an educational psychologist to, to find out why he was mucking around all the time. And what it was a distraction, you know, because he didn't want to be forced to read because he'd make a mess of it. He would muck around and be sent out of the class. So he, we were astonished when he got three A-levels. They weren't great grades. In French, he got a C in. Um, and he didn't want to go to university, not, not even slightly interested. So, but he, want, he loved skiing. 
So he went off to Argentina and did his British, quali British qualifications one summer and then for two years trained in Val d'Isere and various places and, um, uh, and really, really punishing high-end, top-level skiing and became a French ski instructor in his late teens, um, which is the proudest moment of my life. It's what I always wanted to do. And he... Um, uh, and he had the red jacket, which he's always wanted since he was a little boy. And his C in French obviously wasn't a lot of help. But after five months, he came back after his first, first season speaking more or less perfect French. My wife was an au pair, so she speaks very good. We've astonished. How's he done that? So the next year, he taught a lot of Russians because he was working in Courchevel. And he said to the ski school, I'd like to learn Russian because, you know, I teach a lot of kids and it's hopeless with a five-year-old doesn't speak any English and I'm left with them all day. So he took himself off to St. Petersburg. They recommended the school, got a flat, came back 10 weeks later speaking Russian. And now he speaks bits, get this, of 18 languages. He speaks bits of Bulgarian and Japanese, Croatian, you know, all the obvious ones, Greek, uh, Italian, Spanish, not to all the same level. His French is excellent. His Russian's pretty good. But he gets by in, in most languages. He's the kind of person after two weeks, he'll be able to have a conversation with a water ski instructor in their own language, you know. Now, what's happened there that a guy that smart, a natural linguist, that nobody spotted that because he couldn't read. And he used to, when he was uh, trying to be an actor, he failed all the auditions because in most schools, they give you a piece to read. And Harry wasn't very good at reading. When he discovered a teacher who said, no, don't worry about reading, Harry, just muck around, do it, pretend you're that. And he was a natural actor. Anyway, so he did that for about five years. And then one horrible experience, he broke his back in a horrible skiing accident and actually um, was technically dead for a few minutes on the operating table. It was re really horrible. And so he started all over again and he'd always, uh, he taught himself to play the piano as a teenager um, to muck around. And so for a year, he lay mainly in bed and a guy came around from the local village and uh, taught him the guitar. And so we started, you know, he uh, eventually came up with this name, Waiting for Smith. The first drummer that we found that we liked was called Smith, James Smith. And he was always late for every single gig and rehearsal. And we always used to say, why we was hanging around waiting for Smith? Oh, that's a good, that's a good title. James is now a rather successful uh, record executive in New York. And he loves the idea that the band's named after him. Anyway, so yeah, waiting for Smith. Harry is, again, I often say, you know, Obviously, I cannot forget the day I first saw Rowan Atkinson, who's been a big part of my life. And I went to see the Oxford Review at the Edinburgh Festival that had originally had eight people in it. And Rowan had decided six of them weren't funny and it would basically just be him and Richard Curtis. <laughs> and it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life to that point. You know, I just thought this guy is... Yeah, forget Chaplin and Harold Lloyd and you know this guy's the funniest thing I've literally ever seen and I feel like that about Harry's music is like I'm not doing it out of pity uh, you know I want to say to the man from the Times I'm doing it out of greed because I think Harry's going to get really successful because his music thank you for saying that I love it you know I can't get it out of my head 
and he's he's basically working out of time because if he'd been working in 1972 he would be famous by now because very few people can write melodies like that and it's not the prevailing wind you know grime and rap and all that sort of stuff that doesn't particularly interest harry is the the thing that everybody seems to want and it's a very difficult process because i don't know if you know this paul but every day guess how many songs are uploaded to spotify new songs oh, i hate to think it's got to be in the thousands hasn't it yes 80,000 a day oh a my day. goodness 80,000 what, what a are day. the chances of getting notice it's it's very small well let's i think he's got a great chance of getting notice and just let's have a quick listen to one of my absolute favorites so much love I went on like a domino I've seen things you don't want to know And I've heard of people that never grow I know my pain, it is a gift I've felt the blood from the offering And I'm ready for death when it comes to me So can't you see? So much love, so much love Feeling in my arms and legs and toes For you, this is so much love, so much love So why won't you let me through? I just love that song, John. I, I can see, A, so much love coming from you for your son, uh, for Harry, for Waiting for Smith, but I can also see so much love coming from the public because that's a great, great song. Yeah, it's very, it's very catchy and it's very warm. And, you know, Harry's mission is he... He, he doesn't want to be famous because he wants to be rich and admired. He wants to, because he wants to spread joy. That is his stated ambition. He wants to, like, I am very happy that I cheer people up when I do. And Harry wants to do that in the same way. He wants to both to make people tap their feet and enjoy the music, but also to understand that he also has, has pain, has had difficulties in his life. And we all do. And that's, that's what great pop songs are, aren't they? They're wonderfully uplifting tunes about something very sad and serious. It's a strange paradox that, you know. Uh, it's a wonderfully evocative as well. What makes you laugh, John? <laughs> well, um, it's, that's a hard question because of course, a lot of humor is that it's unpredictable. It's the surprise, you know, like you just threw that at me and I was surprised and I laughed, you know. But I think I do like dad jokes. I, um, my wife is often says, oh dear, I think I'm losing my hearing. And I go, pardon? And she <laughs> always catches her out. Or um, one of my favorite pathetic jokes is to enter a crowded lift, you know, and then say, now I expect you're wondering why I called you all here this afternoon, which, really breaks the tension you know not yeah. everybody laughs but half of them do laugh it's situational because laughter is like registering a shock and then the release after that isn't it because yeah. people in a in a lift or an elevator for our american listeners are going to be in a state and you're shocking and breaking the state to allow them to have a release well we've reached the point in the show uh, where we're going to do quick fire questions. <laughs> quick fire questions. 
Who's the funniest business person that you've met? Well, I can think of uh, two actually proper businessmen that I think are very funny. One is uh, Howard Stringer, who's a friend from the, our kids were at the same prep school together. And he is the first, he's Welsh by provenance, the first non-Japanese ever to run the entire Sony Corporation. So he's wow. a big deal, ran CBS before that. He's, he's very funny. And the other one is a much newer friend called Alan Scott, uh, which is his pen name because he's a writer and he's written everything from Don't Look Now, probably one of the greatest films ever made, Nick Rogue's yeah. great film with Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland, and more recently, The Queen's Gambit, um, which is this huge Netflix hit. He's still going. Yeah, I've watched it. It's great. But for many, many years, his day job was chairman of Macallan Whiskey. And he's also delightfully funny. What book makes you laugh, John? You're surrounded by books, so I'm hoping that some of them make you laugh. I don't tend to read... Um, funny books really i mean i'm so busy doing qi research i read serious things i read dictionaries and encyclopedias and you know science and um and non-fiction on the whole what film makes you laugh this is not a funny film really but i like the uh, john carpenter the director and assault on precinct 13 is a very very uh, scary police drama, uh, very dark indeed, but there are some unbelievably good jokes in it. And that's an, another thing that humour being part, I don't just yeah. sort of don't think anything counts unless it's got some humour in it. If it's not got any humour in it, there's something awry. It's, it seems to be part of life to me, including religious stuff. You know, I, I, um, I think the very occasional funny vicar or funny Catholic priest. I think that's an amazing thing when they get it right, especially at funerals, you know, if people can tell, tell jokes, which is another thing where do you, isn't it interesting about humor and, and, and death is that, you know, obviously funerals are uh, awful in so many ways, but the wake when people let go, and suddenly they're honest and they're making amends and they're forgiving each other and they're laughing. It's yeah. the most peculiar thing that people laugh a great deal at funerals. I would say more than they do at weddings where people are mainly sort of showing off their new hat and uh, they're all young and in their prime, but at, at funerals, everyone's bereft and suddenly they're more human and they're, and they laugh. Yeah. That's really interesting because that takes us on to the next question. You talked about funerals and, uh, uh, can be funny is what do you think is not funny I thought you were going to ask me what word makes me laugh well I will ask you that in a bit <laughs> <laughs> uh, well this is a question that comes up a lot um, and I don't think there's any subject that you can't be funny about if it's done right I mean there are lots of things in life that are not even slightly funny but finding a funny response to anything is possible. What word makes you laugh? Well, I don't think you can go wrong with wobble, wobble bottom, but um, I don't know why I always find wobble bottom very funny. Um, we did a sketch in Northern Honeycombies called um, uh, Stout Life, and it was a parody of uh, a programme on London Weekend called Gay Life. And Stout Life was about people who were just slightly overweight and how badly treated they were by everybody. And 
wobble bottom was used in there. And Mel Smith would do this thing. He said, you know, what I mean is the kind of, it's very ahead of its time, very offense taking, you know, wokish sort of character. He said, you know, that's the sort of thing that stout people is unfairly treated. I mean, for example, I heard a joke the other day. Orson Welles gets on a speak your weight machine and the machine says no coach parties, please. (laughs) (laughs) But I was going to share with you this thing. You've probably never even seen this. We did this book. Uh, Richard Curtis and I put this together for Comic Relief, the definitive Blackadder books with... And it's got all the scripts in there, but I did the bits in the middle, which are the um, little extra bits. And talking about silly words, this is um, Prince Regent's, you know, a bit of a fop, as you know, he Laurie's Prince Regent. Yeah. His laundry list. Turtle and Son, Gentleman's Launderers and Spruces, Three Bun Lane, Clerkenwell. <laughs> so this, and it's got all these, so you've got Sporans, none. Kimono's Informal 3, Kimono's Foul Weather, Shoulderettes 3, Scanties 44, Folderols 2, Skimpies 9, Underskimpies 9, Overskimpies 4, Arbroath Smokies, Halterneck Swagger Flopsies, Whoops Daisies, Bossom Hearties, Log Warmers, Boleros, Bobby Knickers, Varsity Roasters, Rap Rascals, Bunny Lariats, Todgerellos, Billows, Bufflers, Bung Nasties, Ossops, Otter Tops, Hair Shirts, Nil. Sarongs, four. Squeamishes, nine. Undersqueamishes, eight. Squirters, dinner dirndles, night panties. <laughs> Club Dorises, slip goslings, fur. Slip goslings, tweed. Blouses, 52. Chemises, chive clamps. Hug bunters, dress nancies. Swallow breasted port scathos. Scugs, 50. Scrotals, 10. Nipple loops, two. <laughs> anyway, it just goes on. That makes me laugh. I, I just can't. It's pathetic. Complete oh, it's superb! Absolutely superb! Oh God, that 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 is hilarious. <laughs> what sound makes you laugh? What sound? Yeah. Um, well, I was thinking <laughs> when I was very small. When I said I first went to prep school, and I was sort of you know. Um, Quite, quite shy, I suppose, and uh, I had to read out something in geography uh, which contain, contained the expression wood pulp. It was about, you know, logging in Canada or something, and I mispronounced it as wood plop. <laughs> and I just completely lost it. I couldn't stop laughing for the whole of the rest of the lesson. I don't know why that, why the sound of plop makes me laugh. Um, the sound of plop, which is uh, a lovely <laughs> album. And uh, <laughs> Love. <laughs> yes. The name of Waiting for Smith's new album, the Sound of Love. <laughs> yeah. Two grown men giggling. Um, <laughs> um, you went to Cambridge. Would you rather be considered clever or funny? I don't think either. I um, You may think this is a bit of a weird thing to say, but I try to do what I know to be right or what I believe to be right and, and not care what other people think. Uh, and I'm quite good at that. And, and I don't feel, um, it, again, it's, I think it's, it's very important to do the right thing. So I'd rather be considered kind. If people thought I was a kind person, I'd be happy with that. Because... Here's the thing, Paul, 
you can't take credit for being clever or really being funny. These are gifts that you're, you're either born with or they come to you because of your upbringing. Being kind, particularly to somebody who doesn't deserve it, that takes effort. And so that's something I, I, and I think that's the only thing a person can take credit for, which is making an effort, doing it when you don't want to, doing it when it's difficult, being kind to people who don't deserve it, forgiving people who don't deserve it. That's a high calling, but clever and, you know, it's like you can't take credit for being tall. That's what you are, you know, and that's something that happened to me in my midlife crisis. I used to think it was important to be clever, to be right, you know, to win, to, to come top, those things. I don't think those are important at all now. But being nice and generous and fair and um, helping people, that's what I like to do. I, I know it sounds pious, but it works for me, you know. I don't think it sounds pious at all. I think it's a, it's a, it's beautiful. And finally, John, desert island gags. If you could only take one joke with you to a desert island, what would it be? Well, it's so, I would say the bear joke, which is my wife's favourite, was far too rude to tell on the... Oh, no, no, it is. No, no, it's a, I can't. I can't. I'd be too embarrassed. And, and, and it's probably not even politically correct anymore. Um, I don't know. There's a few, but uh, since it's desert island gags, uh, I'm going to tell you a desert island joke that I think is very good. It's one of my favourites. So a guy's got shipwrecked on one of those little desert islands, you know, a few palm trees and forests and a waterfall back there and so on. And uh, he's there for a long time. And he's, he's lonely, you know, but he builds a little shed and a hut and he learns to grow some simple vegetables and catches his own fish. And he's, uh, you know, but he's alone. And one day he's on the beach and there's a human body washed up on the, on the beach, on the sand. And it's a woman. And he turns her over and she's just breathing so he gives her cpr and mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation and gets her she, she gets conscious and he takes her to a little hut and tucks her up in a simple bamboo blanket that he's woven himself and uh, and then eventually after a long sleep she wakes up my goodness he looks at her and it's michelle pfeiffer michelle pfeiffer my god he's always admired her and and so She's so grateful that uh, he saved her life. And um, anyway, they, they're alone together and, and they obviously become friends and eventually lovers. And um, they, they're passionately, in fact, passionately in love. She's the big love of his life and vice versa. And they're very, very close. And one day they're sitting happy as anything by the little log fire in the evening. And this guy says, Michelle, darling. And she says, yes, darling. He said, um, I wonder if I, this is a slightly strange thing I'm going to ask, but w would you mind, she says, no, no, honestly, I love you, whatever you want, I, no need to be ashamed, ask me whatever you want, he said, well, it is rather odd, and she says, no, no, go on, so, so he pulls out this little charcoal from the fire, and he said, would you mind, Michelle, if I drew a little moustache on your top lip and called you Dave, and she goes, uh, uh, okay, yeah, no, that fine, darling. Yes, of course. Okay, yes, go ahead. Let's do it. So he draws a little moustache on her top lip, and she and he says, "Dave," and she says, "Yes." He says, "Dave, you'll never guess who I'm sleeping with at the moment." <laughs> of course, it's really you never guess who I'm fucking at the moment. But um, 
no, oh no, it's a brilliant gag. It's a wonderful way to end the interview. Thank <laughs> you, John, so much for being wonderfully cheerful and so kind. We really oh, appreciate you. Being thank on you, the Paul. Show. It's been lovely. It's been lovely talking to you. Thanks for having me. The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes, and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production.